Our scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new to Sojourn. And it's always a privilege just to be able to hear, stand up, and be able to share God's Word with you on a Sunday morning. Signs. There are signs all over this place. Um, you know, signs are a good thing. We need signs. Signs, they inform us. Signs, they declare things to us. Signs give us direction. Signs even make sure we're going in the right direction at times. Let me ask you, do you know how many signs you passed on your way to church this morning? Bet you don't, do you? I do, because last week I counted them. Because <laughs> I knew I was going to talk about this. So, I counted over 50 signs from Cherokee, West Cherokee, to here at Sojourn. 50 signs. Now, some signs can, can, can be very confusing and not really inform us or give us good information, good direction. In fact, I have a few of those signs I want to show you. Look at this one. Swimming notice, Minnesota state law strictly prohibits underwater smoking. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that should have been snorkeling, not smoking. Look at the next one. Please try to walk without walking. Now, I've never done that before, have you? No, that probably was meant to say walk without talking, but they said walking. And this next one, this is really, do not breathe under the water. Now, that is a good sign right there. You don't want to breathe under the water because you won't last very long. So, some signs can be very confusing when you look at them. The book of 1 John is kind of like one big sign to us. But the thing about the book of 1 John is it's not confusing in any way. It, with much clarity, has pointed us to Jesus, our advocate and our propitiation. It tells us who Jesus is and it assures us that we can know that we have salvation through Christ, who is our Savior. And we've seen that over and over in the book of 1 John. Now, I have never done this in a sermon, but I came across a blog post by Kevin DeYoung on the book of 1 John. And it's so good, I thought, I'm just going to read it to you. It's very short, so it's not going to take very long to read this. But it's so good, I thought, I need to share this with you guys. So listen to what Kevin DeYoung says about the book of 1 John. He says, whenever counseling... Christians looking for assurance to salvation, I take them to 1 John, 
This brief epistle is full of help for determining whether we are in faith or not. In particular, there are three signs John, 1 John, gives us that we can answer the question, do I have confidence or condemnation? The first sign is theological. You should have confidence if you believe in Jesus, the Son of God. John doesn't want people to, have, to be doubting. God wants you to have assurance to know that you have eternal life. And this is the first sign that you believe in Jesus. You believe that He is the Christ or the Messiah. You believe He is the Son of God. And you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So if you get your theology wrong about Jesus, you will not have eternal life. But one of the signs that should give you confidence before God is that you believe in His only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The second sign is moral. You should have confidence if you live a righteous life. Those who, who practice wickedness, who plunge headlong into sin, who not only stumble but habitually walk in wickedness should not be confident. This is no different than what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. We're, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And in Galatians chapter 5, that those who walk in the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is no different than what Jesus tells us in, in John 15, that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So, if you live a morally righteous life, you should have confidence. And lest this standard make you despair, Keep in mind that part of living a righteous life is refusing to claim that you live without sin and coming to Christ for cleansing when you do sin. The third sign is social. You should have confidence if you love other Christians. If you hate like Cain, you do not have life. But if your heart and your wallet are open to the brothers and sisters, eternal life abides in you. But if your heart, or one necessary sign of true spiritual life is that we love one another. These are the three signposts that assure us that we are on the road that leads to eternal life. These are not three things that we do to earn salvation, but three indicators that God has indeed saved us. And we have seen all three of those already in the book of First John. All three of those signs that he mentions there. And so, First John is like a catalyst to us. It catal it's a catalyst of confidence and assurance to those, in, those of us who know that we are Christians. Now, the, the same John who wrote the book of First John wrote about a man named Nicodemus one night who came to Jesus wanting to know who Jesus was, and wanting to know the ways of God. And Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, Jesus, I don't understand. How can a man be born again? What is, does he enter into his mother womb a second time? And Jesus kind of smiles at him. That's my rendition. Kind of smiles at Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you are born of water, which is the physical birth, 
and born of the Spirit, which is the spiritual birth, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so John writes that in his gospel in chapter 3. And John continues to give us confidence and assurance that we can know that we are true Christians. And he does this here in chapter 5, in these five verses, by showing us three spiritual birthmarks of a true born-again Christian. Now, when you walk into a home where a new baby lives, you know it. You know it. Because when you walk in, you know there, there's some sure signs to, that a newborn baby is living in this house. If you walk into a house and you see a pile of little diapers there and this big box of baby wipes, you pretty well know there is a baby, a new baby just been born. You walk into a house and all that you hear is crying and crying and crying. That's a pretty good sign that there's a brand new baby born to this, this house, to this home. Or if you walk into the home and you see a, a, a mom and a dad standing there with bloodshot eyes, you pretty well know there's a brand new baby that's been born into this home. Listen, the same is true with us, about us. We can know that we are truly Christians by the spiritual birthmarks of being born into the family of God. And so what are these spiritual birthmarks that John points out to us here in chapter 5? Now, the things that we're going to see this morning are not anything we haven't seen already. But John says them a little different here in chapter 5. Why does he say them different? Because he wants you and me to know with confidence that we are born again Christians. And so the first birthmark I want you to see is the birthmark of faith. Look at verse 1. He says, everyone who, is be who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born, has been, been born of Him. And so this very first birthmark is belief. Now, there are a couple of, of important factors I want to point out about uh, this, verse, this verse here. The first thing is the, the word everyone. Everyone. John uses this word everyone three different times in 1 John chapter 5, verse, the first five verses. Three times he uses it. And it is a word that is all-inclusive. And what that means is that no one is excluded from this. No one is exempt to what follows that John says. So, in a world where we think that we have the right to choose for ourselves how we ought to live, what we ought to be, what it ought to look like in our lives, it doesn't work that way in God's economy with the new life. And John makes that so clear to us here in this first verse. Twice, John mentions, or three times actually, John mentions being born again or being, uh, or being born of God in verses 1 and in verse 4. 
You see, the new birth, the new birth is the starting point of any relationship that we have with God. It is the starting point. Now, pastor, you know, I can believe in Jesus. I can believe and put my faith and my trust in Jesus, trust him with my life. But I don't know if I can, I can hang with this idea of being born again. I don't know. Listen, you can go to church your whole life. You can be religious, live a religious life. You can live a moral life. You can tithe your money to the church, and none of that will give you assurance and get you into heaven, into a relationship with Jesus. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be born again if you're going to see or enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you can go down to the morgue and you can dress up a corpse in the finest clothes that money can buy. But you know what that thing is, that corpse is? It's still a corpse. It is still a corpse. What that corpse needs is new life. It needs new life. Spiritually, before any of us came to Christ and were born again, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And so what we need is new life that only God can impart to us. We can't attain new life by our own efforts. No matter how hard we try, or if we try to clean up our lives in any way, if we, we can go to church more often, we can do anything we can think about doing, but we cannot obtain new life. Amen. Rather, look what John, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Listen, that is true of physical raising of the dead, but it's also true of the spiritual raising of the dead. Jesus is the one whom He gives life to who He wishes. Listen, God is sovereign over our salvation. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Or Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, regeneration, the new life, new life is totally a work of God. It's God's work. Now we might think, well, I'm choosing to trust Jesus with my life. But the question is, the question is this. How can a dead sinner do that? How can a dead sinner choose life? 
Look what Jesus or what John said in 1 John chapter 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God's work. Now, just as none of us chose, none of us chose how we would be born physically, neither did we determine what we would be, how we would born, be born spiritually. You know, we have been abundantly blessed here at Sojourn Amen. with new babies. We have new babies all over the place. I mean, I can't even begin to name all the new babies, but I know, I know a few of them. There's Nehemiah, there's Elijah, there's Sage, there's, um, oh, what's the other one? Golly, Owen, Owen was just born. Mason, that's right, that's who I was trying to think of. So we have all these new babies being born. And even in our family, we've had a new baby born. Siler was born in September. And so we have all these new babies. We've been abundantly blessed. But you know there's one thing that all these new babies have in common? You know what that is? Besides diapers and all the other things that come with new babies, there's one thing that all these babies have in common. Not a single one of them chose what family to be born into. They didn't make that choice. They didn't choose. I mean, Sage didn't come up to you and say, hey, I'd like to be in your family. Is that okay with you guys? No. She didn't do that. Elijah didn't do that. No, they didn't make the choice to be born into that family. Now, let's just flip that around a little bit. Let's just say in a couple of years, Sage comes to you and Catherine and Dylan and says, hey, you know, mom and dad, I don't know, this thing's not working out. It's not working out. I know what you're saying. It's not working out, so I'm just going to choose to leave the family and go find another family. No, they're not, that's, that's absurd, you say. Well, there's a growing thing in our world today. It's called deconstruction of your faith where people are questioning everything about their faith. And listen, some people need to question some of the things they believe about their faith, and they need to throw that out. But people are questioning everything about their faith to the point where they're saying, I don't believe in Jesus any longer. I don't have no faith any longer. Listen, as the point is, we don't get to choose to be part of God's family. And we don't get to choose to not be part of God's family. And John has made that abundantly clear in 1 John. The fact is that he's shown us, we've seen it already, that people who do that perhaps never really had faith to begin with. Now the way that John structures this very first sentence here in chapter 5 is so important because... Faith or belief is a result of the new birth and not the cause of it. You see, the combination of the tense of the verbs that John uses here in this first verse is so very important. The word belief or believes is 
is a different verb than the word, the verb for has been born. And the f- believe is in the perfect, or is, a, is in present tense, and the verb uh, has been born is in the perfect tense, which indicates an action that takes place in the past with continuing results in the present or in the future. And so what John is really emphasizing here is that faith is a result or it's the evidence of the new birth. It's not the cause of it. I love how John Stott puts this. Look what he says here. He says, Our present continuing activity of believing is a result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we become and remain God's children. And so we, we are born again and then we believe. What do we believe? Well, it's not some random belief about anything or whatever you want to believe. No, John shows us that there is a clear object, object to our faith. You see, faith, saving faith is a faith that believes in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. Believing in Jesus in verse 1 and believing in Jesus in verse 5. He brackets this whole, all these verses. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Verse 5, who is, the, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so believing in Jesus as the Christ means it is to believe in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, God's anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the, profe- the pro- prophesied one in the Old Testament who came to save his people. To believe in Jesus as the Son of God means that he is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. And so believing in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God means that you, you entrust your eternal destiny and your right standing before God to everything that He is. Everything. Not in yourself, including your faith. But entirely in Jesus, his, to His substitutionary death on the cross for your sins, you believe that He paid the price for your, your sins. He paid the debt. And God, and believing that, you have, may have eternal life in His name. And so the very first birthmark we see is that of faith. It's believing. But the second birthmark I want you to notice is the birthmark of love. The birthmark of love. Now, it's not just any kind of love, but it's a love for God and for His family that leads to obedience. A love for God and His family that leads to obedience. Look at Verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we, that, that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now, we've seen a lot about love 
already in the book of 1 John in chapters 3 through 4. But John here in chapter 5, he adds a little twist to love in chapter 5. Now, once again, love is not something, this love that we have for God and the children of God is not something that we mustered up in ourselves. It's not something that we, uh, from our own inclination, we do. But it is a result of the new life that we have that's been taking place in us already. You see, we saw that last week in, in chapter 4, verse 19. He said, he first loved us, he brought us into his family, and so now we love him. But it doesn't stop there with love, just loving him. No, we love those who are born in the family of God. Listen, it is impossible to love the children of God without loving God. And it is impossible to love God without loving the children of God. You see, a family relationship unites the two loves together. And so, John, in, in, in verse 2, he makes a very interesting, interesting statement here. Look what he says here in verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, does that seem to you to be out of order? Doesn't it seem to be out of order? Shouldn't it say that we know that we love God because we love the children of God? Well, I don't think it's out of order, or you wouldn't have wrote it like that. Maybe the point that, that John's trying to make is that he's, he's, he's grounding this in something that Jesus already said. Jesus said in Matthew 22, look what Jesus said in Matthew 22. He's, he's grounding this in Jesus' teaching of the two great loves. Matthew 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he says this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And so, my love for others is a natural complement and companion to my love for God. When I love God, I will keep His commandments. And part of those commandments is to love others. Now, often when we think of love, when we talk about love, we talk of it and think about it in the emotional state. It's emotion. Love is not so much an emotion as it is a commitment. Listen, if you just feel love for other people and feel love for God, feelings will soon dissipate. They will, they will leave you wanting. But no, this is not so much about an emotion as emotional experience as it is a volitional commitment with action and truth wrapped in self-sacrificing service. 
Love for God is keeping his commandments. Did not Jesus say the same thing in John 14, 15? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But then notice that John takes it a little step further. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, he says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Here, John adds a new perspective on obedience that, quite honestly, is liberating. Do you see what he's saying here? God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not to be a burden to us. Now, do you get that? Do you, do you understand what he's saying there? They're not burdensome. So, so how does this work? How, how does God's commandments not become a burden to me? What John is saying is this. The new birth gives you a new nature. It gives you a new nature. And with this new nature comes new passions and new affections, new treasures and new values. Now, because I love God, I treasure and I value God and the things of God. I delight in obeying God's commandments now. They are no longer a burden to me. They're no longer, these commandments of God are no longer a drudgery that in a heavy weight that I have to carry around, but they are a delight to me now. John Piper puts it simply this way. Look what he says. What you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. <laughs> it's pretty simple. What you desire to do with your whole heart is not a burden to you. Many of the Psalms testified to this very fact. In fact, look at Psalms 40, verse 8. I delight to do the will, O my God, your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I delight it. Psalms 119, 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalms 119, 174. Trouble and anguish have found me, but out, found me out. But your commandments are my delight. They are a delight to me. God's law is a delight to me. Listen, if my whole heart is to love and obey the Lord, then his commandments will not be a burden to me. Kim and I used to have a pastor who used to say this, you and I will do what we want to do. Now just think about that for a moment. We will do what we want to do. Now that's a true statement, isn't it? The problem is we just don't want to do the right things sometimes. But we, we normally do what we want to do. Why is it that so many of God's people struggle with doing God's will? Why is it that so many of us struggle keeping God's commandments in our life? And we, we look at them as a heavy burden. 
we look at it and it's like this big heavy weight that's just on our shoulders and we don't know how we're going to ever handle it. Why do we struggle with keeping God's commandments? Well, I submit to you, the reason we struggle so often is because we try to obey and serve God with divided hearts. With a divided heart. This so reminds me of King Saul. King Saul. In 1 Samuel, uh, the people wanted a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations when they were supposed to be separate and they were supposed to show God to all the other nations. But they wanted this king. And so they chose Saul as their king. And Saul, bless his heart, he, he, he just didn't have it, what it took. I mean, in, in chapter 13, the, they're getting ready to go into battle against the Philistines. And Samuel said, I will come in seven days and I will bless the army so you can go up against the Philistines. And so the Philistines, have cut, they're surrounding them and they're waiting for Samuel to come. And Samuel didn't show up at the appointed time, the Bible says. And Saul's getting worried. He's getting all f- fearful. The people are kind of shifting around, kind of losing, going out of their ranks. And Saul says, bring me the offerings. Bring me the offerings. I will give the offerings and I'll bless us. And as soon as he finishes, guess who walks up? Samuel. What have you done, Saul? You have acted so foolishly. And Saul tries to explain. He said, well, I mean, you didn't show up at the appointed time. The people were scattering. And I forced myself to take on the role of the priest. Only the priest was to, to give the sacrifice. But notice what Samuel said back to him. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out for him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over the people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was a man who had a divided heart. Saul had a half-hearted commitment to keep God's commandments. And so God says, no longer... Your kingdom won't reign. I have chosen for, my, for myself a man after my own heart. And of course, we know who that man was, right? It was David. David was a man after God's heart. In fact, look what the testimony of David in Acts 13, 22. And when, it, and when he had removed Saul, him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, God testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. David was a man after God's heart. But now, wait a second. I know David. I know about David. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. How could he be a man after God's own heart? And how could it say there in Acts 13 that he... He he will do all my will. See, we get confused about what it really means to be a man 
or a woman after God's own heart. We think we have to be perfect. We have to do everything right. We have to keep all God's commandments to the T. God's own testimony is the fact that David, a great sinner, was a man after God's own heart. You know why? Because David was also a great repenter. He had a heart for God. He had a heart to do God's will. It doesn't mean he was perfect, but he had a heart that was wholeheartedly devoted to God. When you love God with all your heart and desire to keep his commandments, they won't be a burden to you. doesn't mean you'll do everything perfect, but you'll want to do God's will. Amen. One other author, another author put it this way. He says, love provides the motive for obeying the commandments of the law, but the law provides specific direction for exercising love. Listen, loving God rightly is not just a matter of external behavior or outward obedience on your part. It is a longing to do His will from a gratitude for who He is and what He has done for us in Jesus. We love God with our whole hearts. So one of the birthmarks of, truly, of a truly born-again Christian is to love God and His family, which leads us to a willing, heartfelt obedience. The last birthmark I want us to see here is the birthmark of being an overcomer. An overcomer. Look at verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, these last two verses here in chapter 5, in, in verses 4 and 5, make it so clear what John is pointing out to us, to the ones of us who have been born of God. It's almost like he's taking a hammer and, and hammering down a nail. He's, he's just ha hammering it down with this repetitiveness of the phrase, overcome the world, overcome the world, overcome the world. Now the words overcome in these two verses and the word victory, they come from the same Greek root word in the Greek. It's a word that we're very familiar with. We all know it. You know what the word is? Nike. If you have Nike tennis shoes on, where do you think Nike got the word from? They got it from the Greek. It's a Greek word, Nike, to victory. To, it, it literally means to conquer, to prevail, to, to get the victory. And so, the ones we, what are we to overcome? What do we have to victory over that John says here? We are to have victory and overcome the world. We, you know, we've already seen about the world in 1 John. He told us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, all about the world. So the world here refers to this evil, organized system under Satan's 
dominion that is opposed to God and His purposes. And as born-again Christians, believers, we are in opposition to this world and the devil. I like the way, or, you know, see, as Christians, we are in, in, in combat. We are in armed combat against the enemy of our souls. I like the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6. Look what he says. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so what Paul's saying here, this is who we battle against. This is who we're in conflict with. He also goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look what he says here. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are spiritually, but are divine powerful power to the destroying of strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. We should go on. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so what this scripture is talking about is the weapons that we wage with. This is referring to are the weapons that we battle, the spiritual weapons that we battle with. Listen, every battle that we face in this life is a spiritual battle. It is really a spiritual battle. Now, once again, John here in verses 4 and 5, he uses the tense of the verb that John employs in these verses are so important. You see, the first overcome in verse 4 and the last overcome in verse 5 are in the present tense. And they refer to an ongoing, repeated victories over worldly powers and influences in our lives. But then at the end of verse 4, when John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, this is in what is called the eras, the eras. Eros tense, which simply is a simple action that points to something. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to our faith. Our faith, which is a result of our new birth that we've experienced. Listen, because you have been born again from above, as a Christian, you have faith that looks to the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And because of the finished work of Christ, Christ enables you to continually triumph over this world. That is why right now, Christian, you are an overcomer. You are an overcomer right now because of the finished work of Christ. Now, let me ask you, do you feel like an overcomer this morning? Do you feel like that you are an overcomer? Do you feel like that you are a conqueror? Or do you feel like you're one that's constantly battling, constantly struggling 
even to the point that you wonder, will I ever get the victory? Will I ever get the victory? Listen, your fight, even right now, is a lot like the final months of World War II. The final months of World War II, on June 6, 1944, D-Day, Allied troops stormed the northern coast of France to liberate Europe from Nazi tyranny. Once those soldiers had heroically and fiercely established a beachhead, they started moving inland, gaining ground one blood-soaked mile after another. The fight drug on until May 8, 1945, which we refer to as VE Day. Nearly one year later, later, when the German army finally surrendered, but the war had been won 11 months before, when the Germans could not stop the Allied landing on D-Day. To the guys who fought so hard from the beaches of France and to the heart of Germany, no sacrifice that they went through, no sacrifice along the way was really a waste. They were fighting not just for victory, but they were fighting in the victory. Christian, that is exactly how you battle today. That's how we battle today. Listen, the fight that you're fighting right now is real. It's real. The struggles that you are facing right now, they are real. They're real. But we are not ones who fight for victory. We are ones who fight in the victory already. Because we are overcomers. We are the ones who fight for or from victory. Because the war has already been won. Listen, when Jesus hung on the cross and the words came from his lips, it is finished. When he said those words, the victory was won. The war was won. It was over. And you and I became overcomers right then. We were overcomers right then. You are an overcomer this morning if you are a true believer in Christ. And so the three spiritual birthmarks that we see of a true born-again Christian, one is they believe. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Number two, they love God and His family. And that love for God and His family leads them to an obedience that is not a heavy weight in their lives, but it's, it's a freedom. It's a liberating thing in their lives. It's not a burden. And number three, they overcome the world. They are victorious even now. They overcome the world. Now, to close with this morning, I want to leave you with an exhortation. 
I want to exhort you this morning. If I were to step into the house of your life right now, if I were to step into the house of your life, would I see the evidence of new birth in your house? Would I see the birthmark of faith? A faith that believes that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Would I see the birthmark of love, a love for God and a love for others that is so evident with your obedience to Christ? And would I see the birthmark of an overcomer, one who's battling, but you're battling from victory, the victory that's already won? Listen, if you can say yes to that question this morning, then I want you, as you leave this service, I want you to live in the confidence and the assurance that your faith is alive and it's real. And you have the hope of eternity with the Father one day when this journey is all over. So have that confidence this morning. Have that assurance this morning. But if you cannot answer yes to that question, then the only hope that you have this morning is to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look to the love that God had for you so much that he sent his only son to save you from the penalty of sin, to rescue you out of the slavery of sin that you find yourself trapped in. And he did that to set you free this morning and to restore you back to a right relationship with himself. And so if you can't answer yes to that question, then let God capture your heart this morning to bring new life into your life this morning. Believe in Jesus, that he is God's only son, that he came to redeem you and to rescue you with his precious blood. Trust Jesus with your life today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are thankful that we can hear from the word that you preserved for your saints for now 2,000 years. We still get to hear the testimonies, Jesus, of what you have done and what you said through your own mouth and through your apostles. And Holy Spirit, we want you to do the work in us that only you can do. And Jim's already asked for that. Uh, if, there are, if there are people here who don't know you and they hear a message, and have heard all these messages about assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation, how do we know if we're Christians? And if they're still confused or afraid or uh, don't know if they know you, God, if they really don't, would you pull them to yourself, Holy Spirit? Will you make them born again by your Holy Spirit and confirm with their hearts that they are yours. They can do that today. I pray that they would trust in you as they turn from their sins and begin to love you and begin to love other people, Lord. And there are probably also people here who do know you and who do belong to you, but really need this message of 1 John because sometimes they think they don't and they wonder what exactly that looks like, God. And so 
uh, for those who are your sons and daughters, but who are struggling with doubt and fear and need assurance from you, God. We can't give that to them. No, no fellow Christian, no pastor can assure them. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. So will you draw them to yourself also and show them that they are indeed your kids and that you have deep love for them and show them the ways, show them the evidence in their own lives of ways that they're loving you, that they're loving other people, that their faith in you is true and that they are living lives of obedience. Uh, Jesus, we love you so much and we want to love other people and we always do that in in a mixed way and in a way that is less than the way that you do. Uh, I would I would guess most of us would not answer hurrah to Jim's question if we feel like we're overcomers because we are at war and we look outside of us and it doesn't look like we're winning. It doesn't look like your church, Jesus, and your gospel is overcoming and destroying the gates of hell. It looks like we have a thin grip. It looks like we're in the minority. It looks like people are rejecting you all the time, God. And, and when we look inside, we sometimes feel the same way. Like it looks like we are not winning in our battle against sin. We're not doing the things that you've called us to, God, and you are, you're better than that. And your power is stronger than that. And we have no idea actually what you're doing in the world. We can't see it. It's like a mustard seed that grows into this massive tree. So will you encourage us by the power of your spirit today to continue to do the things that we know we need to do? We need to love people. We need to put them above ourselves. We need to pursue you, Jesus, and grow in our love for you through your word and through our fellowship with one another. We need to be faithful to tell the truth to a lost and dying world. No matter how they respond or what they think of us, we need to care deeply, Jesus, what they think about you. So turn us around, put us on our mission, and let us walk knowing that we know how this game ends. We know the final score of history, and we are going to win because of what you've already done for us, God. Let us walk in that victory boldly. Help us to love people and tell them the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.